Well, good morning and uh, welcome again to GBC. Uh, My name is Daniel Ernest. I'm the executive pastor here, and uh, it's uh, a pleasure to get to open God's Word and to teach to you from it today. Uh, Today, we're going to be looking at the end of Joshua chapter 8. So if you would please go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. We're going to be looking specifically at verses 30 through 35. And as you get there, I want to sort of orient you to our text today. In some ways, it serves as the conclusion of of this section we've been going through since we started the book of Joshua. Really, it's the end of the initial stages of the Israelite conquest into the promised land. And and if you remember, uh, after their victory at Jericho in chapter 6, Israel's initial campaign into Ai was unsuccessful because of the sin of a man named Achan. He he took some of the the plunder from Jericho that was meant for God. That that happened in chapter 7. But in chapter 8, this was last week's sermon, After the people dealt with Achan's sin, God once again fought for his people and they sacked Ai. And in big picture, they extended their presence in and their possession of the land that God had promised to them. But starting with verse 30 of chapter 8, we have this real stark transition. In fact, if you were just sort of reading through our verses today, they seem almost out of place. Verse 29, the verse before our our text today, it ends with the grisly death of the king of Ai, this, this redemption tour victory for Israel. And then you get to verses 30 to 35, and they just kind of fall flat. It's not a good continuation of of the action that we just read. And if you don't believe me, let me prove it to you. I want to read it. Look at Joshua 8 again. I'm reading verses 30 to 35. Verse 30 starts, At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebel, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of of Moses an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there, in the presence of the people of Israel, he, that's Joshua, wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebel, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all of the assembly of Israel, and the women, and the little ones, and the sojourners who lived among them. 
Okay. You see what I mean? Like, if a movie were to be made about these opening chapters of Joshua, like these verses, they'd probably be left out. Like, these are the, the Tom Bombadil verses of Joshua. And if you don't know who Tom Bombadil is, it's a reference from the Lord of the Rings. And, and I know that you guys think that like Wes Carpenter and, and Michael Brady are the nerdy boys on our staff. And, and they're only outdone by Hayden Potcotter who, who like plays Dungeons and Dragons. Like you're totally right for thinking that they're the nerds on our staff. They definitely are. But what I'm doing here is showing my range, okay? My interests extend beyond sports just, just barely, okay? But, but Lord of the Rings, what you need to know about Tom Bombadil, Lord of the Rings is this epic story. There's, there's so much action and adventure. But at the very beginning, there's like three chapters where the main characters get stuck with this enigmatic character named Tom Bombadil. And he like bounces around and he sings and he speaks in rhymes. And there's a point to those chapters. Like Tolkien wrote them for a reason. It's a really important point. But like if you're a casual, you're just sort of reading through the Lord of the Rings, you can't wait for those chapters to be over. And like you'd expect, that scene, those scenes were left out of the movie. The same thing would likely happen here. If you're the person in charge of writing the movie being made about Joshua 1 through 8, like, this scene's not making the cut. Okay, think about it. You got Rahab, right, at the beginning of Joshua. You've got to have a strong female lead these days. She's definitely in the movie. Okay? <laughs> Miraculously crossing the Jordan, the waters parting, them walking through on dry land. That's amazing. It's in. The walls falling at Jericho, for sure. It's a no-brainer. The defeat at AI. Surprise, our hero has a weakness. It's in. Aiken being stoned, lots of drama there. Love building the tension, it's in. The eventual victory at AI, a little revenge, a little redemption, that's the slam bang finish you're looking for. It's the perfect ending to your film. But what we just read in verses 30 to 35 it, it basically depicts like a, a worship service with, with sacrifices, with, with copying the law, literally reading it word for word. Like, it's 100% getting cut from the movie. And I know that this is a horrible way to get your attention and to make you pay attention for the rest of this sermon but while this might not be the most riveting read, while this might be something you just sort of pass over, this scene is, is, is not just some boring interruption to what other, is what otherwise an, an amazing story. In fact, I actually think these verses serve to make the most important points of the opening chapters of Joshua. Points that Israel, points that we can't ignore. So to understand these points, I need to spend a little time explaining what's going on. I need to set the scene, and then we can figure out the message these verses are sending, the important points that they're making both for Israel and for us. Okay, so to, so to start to explain, first, 
You might have noticed in verses 31, 33, and 35, we're told that Joshua did exactly what Moses commanded him to do. And these instructions that Moses gave, they actually came from Deuteronomy. So, so before the people enter into the land, Moses gave instruction on what they were supposed to do when they entered. And Joshua does exactly what Moses says. And next, we're told in verse 30 that Joshua builds an altar on Mount Ebel. And I know that you guys are thinking that's pronounced Ebal. But I want you to imagine, if you will, with me, Nate from Ted Lasso reading that word, okay? I'm just kidding. Who would make you guys do that? Like, that's ridiculous. What you do need to know about Ebel is that it's 20 miles north of Ai. It was near a Canaanite city called Shechem. So, so what this means is that after Ai, the Israelites, every single one of them, over a million people, march 20 miles to get to this precise point. And there they do two things. The first thing they did came in verses 30 to 31. I already said that Joshua made an altar on Mount Ebel, and on that altar at Ebel, he makes two different sacrifices, two different offerings. First is he, he makes burnt offerings. These were offerings made for the atonement of sin. They were, they were given as uh, an acknowledgement of guilt. They, they were given uh, as a petition for absolution, for forgiveness. And then Joshua makes peace offerings. These offerings uh, were made to, to reestablish right relationship with God. They were, they were made to symbolize renewed fellowship with God. So, so that's the first thing they do. The second thing they do, this comes in verses 32 to 35. Again, just as Moses instructed, Joshua sets up these large stones and he makes a copy of the law. And then verse 33 tells us that the people, again, all of the people arrange themselves in two groups, half of them in front of Mount Ebel and half of them in front of Mount Gerizim. And they gather themselves around the ark which stands at the symbol, at the, at the center, and this represents, the ark represents, of course, the presence of God in the center of this gathering. And just so you know, a little geography here, the valley between these two mountains it sets up what would be a natural amphitheater, meaning anyone speaking in this valley could be heard from a great distance, which is exactly why they were there. Because then starting in verse 34, we're told that Joshua reads the entirety of the law to the people. Like I said earlier, word for word, blessings and curses. And a detail that we get from Deuteronomy that we don't get here, remember this for later, Deuteronomy tells us that the blessings were spoken toward Mount Gerizim and the curses were spoken towards Mount Ebel. And in response, we're told in Deuteronomy that each group, the blessings over here, the curses over here, would respond to the reading of those blessings and curses by saying, 
amen. Amen. There's like a call and response going on here. Okay, so, so that's the second thing they do once they get to this place. And both of these things, the sacrifices in verses 30 and 31 and the reading of the law, what we just talked about from verses 32 to 35, they compose what is ultimately a worship service, a time for pausing, a time for reflection, where the people are, are reminded of their obligation to obey God, but also where they're reminded of God's provision for them. And ultimately, what this does for them, and by extension, what it shows us, the important point that it's making, it's this. Israel's success, they're, they're, they're taking back the promised land, devoting their enemies to destruction like we've been reading about. This campaign into the promised land, it's not primarily defined by their knocking off the Canaanites. It's not defined by defeating their enemies, taking what's theirs. Instead, it's about something so much greater, something more important. And so what I want to do with the balance of our time is I want to look at these six verses and I want to point out three things that we learn, three important points that in my mind neatly summarize, really they, they, they encompass everything that God is trying to teach Israel and it's going to be really everything that Israel needs moving forward, not just in the book of Joshua, but in the rest of the Old Testament, okay? So the first thing is this, this worship service, like I said earlier, it represents a, a jarring interruption to the ongoing narrative of military conquest. It almost doesn't feel like it should be there, right? Israel had been in almost constant battle since crossing the Jordan. And, and more fighting, of course, is on the horizon. There's more enemies to defeat. And yet, what do they do here? They stop. They pause. Not to, to refit or retrain their troops. Not, not to, to draw up battle plans or practice a new strategy. No, they stop to worship God. And not only that, not only do they not stop fighting, they also put themselves in an incredibly vulnerable position. Remember, the place they travel to, this, this valley between Ebel and Gerizim, it's 20 miles into enemy territory into the heart of Canaan. It's close to an enemy city, a stronghold, a city called Shechem. And they were moving their entire population, including the women and the children. And just to make sure you, you understand what's going on here, I want you to think about all of us, everyone here in this church building, including like the, the whatever, 500 kids that are here and the, like 200 that are under five. <laughs> and I want you to imagine all of us getting up and walking 20 miles, okay? And if we headed west, that'd be like walking almost to, to Katie Mills Mall. How would that go? <laughs> like, and mind you, like, there's no sidewalks, no highways, no cars, no bicycles, no double strollers. <laughs> and then, whatever you have in mind, multiply it by a thousand, okay? This would have been a mess. And it would have made them incredibly vulnerable, incredibly susceptible to attack. 
Like Joshua, who looks like this brilliant military tactician just a couple of verses ago at the beginning of chapter 8, he's now doing things that make no military sense at all. Why does he do this? There's only one explanation. Joshua realizes he knows coming off a time when Israel had acted in disobedience, coming off a time when they had broken covenant, Joshua knows that he must follow God's commands with complete obedience, with complete submission. He knows that in the end, and this is the point, it's not military victory that matters. It's not extending their claim on the land that matters most. And what matters most is Israel's relationship with God. That comes first, always first. So the principle on display for us here, it's that our relationship with God is what matters most. It must always come first. It must be preeminent among your priorities. And that's regardless of what else is going on in your life. Even if there are other things that seem more important, more pressing, the reality is nothing can be more important than your relationship with God. And just to make you understand what I'm saying, what I'm saying is your relationship with God is is more important than your job, than, than your career. It's more important, believe it or not, than your kids, their, their, their travel soccer and baseball teams. It's more important than your desire to travel to, to see really cool places. It's more important than your desire to, to be with friends, to go to every out-of-town wedding that you're invited to. It's more important than your desire to hunt or golf or pursue your, your hobby or to be fit and in shape and so you work out hours and hours every day. It's more important than Longhorn and Aggie football. Okay, talk about blessings and curses right now. <laughs> hey, I've waited all fall. I've been so disciplined. You had to know it was coming eventually. I could keep going with this list because the reality is there are so many things that, of course, you and I, we'd say, well, that's, that's not as important as my relationship with God. I mean, God, he's, he's number one. But like, if we're honest, one quick look at our schedules, one quick look at our bank accounts suggests just the opposite, just the opposite. A lot of us, too many of us, fit God, try to fit God into an already busy schedule. We make room for him when it's convenient, when we have the extra time. We, we, we come to church when we're not traveling or doing whatever else we think is more important. Not because we think it, but because that's what we do. And when we act this way, God becomes more afterthought than priority. Listen, I don't care what's happening in your life. I don't care what urgent concern is is pressing on your heart or, or more practically on your schedule. No matter what it is, it's not more important than your relationship with God. And just like Israel, we must pursue him. We must pursue obedience, even if, even when, it doesn't make sense. Even when people around us would be like, why are you doing that? That's exactly what Israel is doing here. 
It's the first thing we learn from these six verses. The next, I mentioned this earlier, but everything done in this ceremony was done with strict obedience to the instructions that God gave to the people through Moses. Okay, literally, every step, the building of the altar, the offering of the sacrifice, the writing of the law, the reading of the law, the location where they gathered, the people who heard and responded, like every single bit of this was done according to what God had commanded Moses. Not one thing was done on a whim. Not one thing was done according to Joshua's preference, to the people's preference. And what we see from this, the, the, the point being made here, is that God always establishes the terms of relationship with himself. In other words, God defines what it means for us, for you and me, to interact with him. And because of that, we don't get to invent new ways of interaction, new ways of pleasing God. We don't get to be innovative or creative with doctrine and life, to change or syncretize with the newest ideas in culture or society or philosophy. What I'm saying is, in other words, we don't get to pursue relationship with God on our terms, sort of bargaining with him. Like, oh, I'll submit here as long as you let this thing over here slide. Oh, I'll be obedient in this area of my life as long as you do that thing for me. Or I'll take this part from the Bible. It's good, but like, but that part? Whew, that doesn't seem loving. That doesn't seem right, kind. I, I can't believe that. Not today. No, we, we don't get to think this way. Instead, we have to pursue God on his terms, in his ways. We have to bring our entire life under full submission to him. As our text said over and over, we have to be obedient to all that he's commanded, to all that he requires. And you might think, you might be asking, I, I want to do that, but, but how? how? How do I do this? Here's my answer. Whenever we do anything, whenever we encounter some, some problem, some, some fork in the road, a decision maybe that we're making, our first impulse, our first reaction, it must be, what does God's word say about this? It must be, how does the Bible provide me with direction here? Okay, so, so what that means is on the ground, when you're pursuing a new job, maybe one that would, would take you out of town or, or cause you to work more hours than will allow you to be involved here at the church, you should be asking this question. When you're trying to figure out who to date, who to marry, when you're trying to figure out how to date, what you should do, what you shouldn't do, you should be asking, not what do I want, not, not what does the culture say, you should be asking, what does God's word say about this? How can I bring God's word to bear in this area? This applies to everything that we do when you're making a financial decision, when you're making a decision for your kids, what school they go to, what activities they're a part of. We should always be asking, 
what does God's word, what does the Bible say about this? Because it has instruction for all of life. It must shape the way that we act and think and we talk. So that's the second thing that we learn from these verses. We've got to pursue God on his terms. The last thing, the third thing I want to point out is that we must make time to remember We have to regularly remind ourselves of everything that God has said and everything that God has done. It has to be at the forefront of our minds. That's what's happening in these verses. You've got to know, the Israelites have heard the law before. They already had it written down. They're literally carrying around the ark that has the original Ten Commandments in them. But even still, They take the time here, and they'll do it again in the future, over and over. They renew, they remember their covenant with God. And in particular, what we saw was that a special point was made to read out the blessings and the curses. Remember, Gerizim over here, that was for the blessings. Ebel was for the curses. And again, this would be done here, and it would be done later, and it was done to remind the people what was at stake in their obedience to God. What was at stake in their their faithfulness to God's covenant. And if you're not familiar with, with these blessings and curses that Joshua read to the people, he'd be reading these blessings and curses right out of Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. You don't have to turn there, but but the blessings and curses that we see there, they cover every aspect of life from birth to death. Like, the implications of obedience or disobedience were incredibly tangible. Okay, it affected marriage, family, health, finances, business, sex, food and drink, war and peace, childbearing. It ran the gamut. And so the impact of, of, of reading them, of hearing them read like the people hear, there's only one conclusion that an honest person could come to, and that is, I want, I need, I crave God's blessing. Like, you couldn't hear this list of blessings and curses and not want to be obedient to God, to to be faithful to his covenant. And the same is true for us today, but in in a totally different way. You see, the curse the judgment that comes with disobedience, the wrath that we're due, you and me, because of our sin, it was absorbed, it was assumed by Jesus on the cross, right? And I'm not just sort of randomly departing this story to to get to the gospel. We actually see this foreshadowed in our text. You might have missed it, but I mentioned this earlier. In Deuteronomy, remember, Moses instructed that the curses for disobedience be read from where? Mount Ebel. Okay, now look at verses 30 and 31. Scan them really fast. Where were the offerings made? Which mountain did Joshua go to make sacrifices? Do you see it? He built an altar, not on Gerizim, not on the mountain of blessing. No, he went to Ebel the mountain of curse, the mountain of judgment. Do you see the symbolism? 
Did you get the message? Yes, God curses the disobedient. He judges the wicked. But a sacrifice has been provided, and it satisfies God's wrath. It atones for sin, and also it confers, it gives unbelievable, profound blessing to those who repent and believe. Blessings like identity, purpose, security, joy, peace, contentment, belonging, and so much more. All the blessings of Gerizim, they're ours, yours and mine, in Christ, in the gospel. And when we stop to think about that, when we take time to remember what Jesus has done for us, when we do this corporately, as we gather on on Sundays to hear God's word taught, to sing the gospel together, but also as we do this individually, as you and I take time to, to read God's word, to pray, as we do these things, to be intentional, to keep the gospel at the forefront of our minds. How can we not come to the same conclusion of every faithful Israelite that stood there between Ebel and Gerizim that day? How can we not think, I want to be obedient to God? How can we not resolve, I want my life to be marked by by faithfulness, by fidelity to God? Like, this is what should motivate our obedience. As, as Christians, we're not striving to earn God's approval, his affection. That's not what our obedience is for. He's already given that to us in Christ. Now, when we think about the gospel, our response should be obedience. When we remember the life, death, and resurrection, re- resurrection of Jesus, we should be obedient. We should be faithful to God. We should want in gratitude and thankfulness to do the things that he's called us to do. We should trust that those things are the things that are good for us. So to conclude, compared to everything else we've studied, the end of Joshua 8, it's, it's, it's not the most riveting scene. Right? It's not making it in the movie, like I said earlier. But I hope you see, I hope you recognize these three things prioritizing God regardless of circumstances, pursuing God on his terms and not our own, allowing God's provision to fuel, to motivate our obedience. They're lessons that Israel desperately needed to learn. They were far more important than their success or failure on the battlefield. And in fact, what we'll see and what we have seen is their adherence to these principles both now and later They always preceded, really they predicted even, success or failure. But they're equally important to us. right? We may not be engaged in a military conquest, but we are engaged, we're called in the Great Commission to make disciples. We're involved with God's making his name known, revealing himself to the ends of the earth. And like the Israelites, you and I, we, this church, The churches in Houston and in the world will never succeed in our mission to make disciples and discipleship of every tongue and tribe if you and me, if every one of us, if all all the Christians in the world don't learn and apply these three lessons every single day. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for uh, your word. 
for the way you reveal yourself to us in it. Lord, I'm thankful for uh, this text today where we're reminded, Lord, that uh, we are in need of remembering and renewing the covenant that you have made with us, Lord. And I, I pray for each one of us here, Lord, myself very much included, that we would be able, uh, Lord, to recognize uh, the provision you've made for us in Christ, uh, Lord, that uh, through his life, death, and resurrection, we're provided with life and joy and security and contentment, uh, Lord, all the blessings that you promise us in, in him. And, and Lord, I pray that that would propel us to, to great ministry, Lord, to investing in the people around us, Lord, and into participating in the Great Commission and making disciples. Uh, Lord, I pray, I pray for boldness and courage where we need it. Lord, I also just pray for compassion and mercy where it's needed. And ultimately, I pray that all the things that we do as we try, as we strive, Lord, to do these things, I pray that it would be to your glory and in your glory alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.